Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz, and we're recording from the Reagan Defense Forum in Simi Valley. So we're very excited to be out here and even more excited to have Sham Sankar with us, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Palantir. And Sham was brought to the U.S. to escape violence and corruption in Nigeria, has a really interesting background, which we can't wait to get into that story, and also developed an early love of software. So as a developer, founder, and executive, really hits on a lot of the topics we talk about on our show. Uh, Sean joined Palantir in 2006, so he's been there for quite some time now, and was the first business hire and oversees all customer engagements, product strategy, and day-to-day operations worldwide. So Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. It's, it's really exciting to be here. So we've had a, a, a great set of guests here, but I don't think any guests with as unique a kind of story as yours and, you know, we talk a lot to folks up and coming and they think all of us have this great adventure mapped out in detail you know, 30 years in advance. And, and I think many of us, it's amazed ourselves of where we get to over time. Can you share a little bit of kind of your story and, you know, how did you get from growing up in, uh, in a family to winding up at Palantir and what, what attracted you to get into that kind of emerging market? Thank you for those comments, Hondo. I mean, to share a little bit about my own story, I think it really starts with my father. You know, my dad was uh, the last of nine children. He was born in a mud hut in, in the rural part of southern India. And, you know, uh, his is kind of a classic immigrant story where just through the shared sacrifice of so many other of his family members, he was able to get a job in Africa. He actually helped build the first pharmaceutical manufacturing facility there. Until then, all drugs were really imported to the continent. Um, and, uh, you know, he worked really hard to bring us to the U.S. And I'll, I'll share a little bit about that, that journey there and, you know, really instilled in, in, in myself and my brother, this eternal gratefulness for, for being here and what it really means uh, to be American and to be part of this great society. So my father, when he was in Africa, uh, we had to flee great violence. There was, there was an armed robbery at our house. Uh, my father was almost killed. Uh, my mother and I were almost killed. And so we had to, we left everything literally and came as refugees and settled in in Florida. And I was raised with this eternal gratefulness from him that, uh, you know, just, just remember what you have. Like you, you, you ought to be dead in a ditch, that that's actually the counterfactual reality. And uh, no matter how hard things get, you should be so proud and so happy and just make sure you give back that you had the opportunity to be here. And as, as many of my generation, I was in college during 9-11, I was in upstate New York and I tried everything I possibly could to drop out of school and, and, and join CIA, actually. But I think that was probably like everyone else in the country at the time. And uh, you know, that opportunity didn't open up for me. But uh, after, after undergrad, I went to Silicon Valley. I, I worked in tech for a while. And when I heard about this company of a handful of people who wanted to work on problems and counterterrorism, I was so excited. And uh, it, it felt like the opportunity to give it back that I was always looking for. Uh, and at a time where I think Quite frankly, I think the irrelevance of everything else was was kind of clear. It was kind of hollow. You know, like, what are we doing here? What are we building? Why does this matter? Uh, a lot of empty platitudes and it, the ultimate opportunity. You know, in 2005, 2006, to be completely honest, it was much more likely than not that we were going to fail in delivering anything in this ambitious endeavor. But I would much rather have failed working on a problem this meaningful and malleable. And that's that's how I ended up in Palantir. That's awesome. 
And Palantir has been a strong partner to the national security and defense community for many years. And I think, especially recently with the conflict in Ukraine, a lot of companies are stepping up and eager to support the community, but that hasn't always been the case over the past decade or so, especially five years. And so could you talk, tell our listeners a little bit about that passion or what drove Palantir, maybe you individually and then the company to, to be a strong partner to the national security community? Yeah, I think um, for, for everyone at Palantir, uh, the mission matters. You know, you, we all could be doing so many other things and, and what's ultimately charismatic about the work is knowing that you could have this direct impact whether it was working on the front lines of, of COVID and actually delivering the vaccine supply chain or working on the front lines of national security in the current conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and so I think for all of us, that's deeply personally motivating. My family was touched by, by terrorism. My, my uncle was a victim of the 13 coordinated train bombings in, in Bombay and Dubai. You know, so just the opportunity to work on this is, is very clear and what this means, I think, not only for Americans, but, but for the world. Uh, and then the challenges that, that we kind of faced, I think in the, in the beginning, you know, software, you kind of talk about how some things are features or bugs. Even if it was highly unpopular to be working for the government in Silicon Valley in 2005, 2006, it, it was also a, a magnetic filter for the right sort of person. You know, there, there for, for some other set of people, to the extent, and I was one of them, to the extent you discover that this company exists, you, you, you can't stop thinking about it. You can't even contemplate working somewhere else. It, it's just that the mission is so charismatic. Uh, and so it really it got a very passionate, motivated group of people together. I think that was ultimately really needed is, is perhaps as we'll, we'll continue to discuss in, in those days, there was almost no on-ramp mm-hmm. uh, as an outside tech company to contribute to this mission. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a, uh, a great point. I was at SOCOM just as you guys were emerging. And, and I think there was a combination of not that many people in the Valley in particular were interested in national defense and not that many folks in national defense were either interested or had any idea how to leverage what was out there, which caused a lot of friction and uh, discovery and learning, I think, on both sides of both how to buy a, a software commercial product and then how to sell a software commercial product. So it's it's been good learning. What's your what, what have you learned kind of on that path uh, as we've interacted, you know, over the years trying to get, I would say, the impedance mismatch kind of better aligned so that the government can use commercial products as they're built commercially? And and uh, you, you guys have an understanding how to sell into the government in a way that makes sense to the government. Yeah, I think I think we've learned quite a bit along the way. I mean, you know, we started this journey so naive. We didn't even understand that that acquisition was a separate, separate and distinct discipline. We didn't understand the mechanisms. And uh, so th- there was probably a lot of unnecessary brain damage that we accumulated along the way discovering these things. But we've been really active in paying that forward to the rest of the tech ecosystem and helping them with that on-ramp. The department itself has wholesale changed its approach, its receptivity, the, the outreach it's done, the ability to bring people in. Even the mindset you see is starting to change. I think we're, we're far from done with that journey. But um, you know, a, it, it, would be, it would be a total mistake to not acknowledge that a sea change of progress has been made over the last decade in terms of, of what's capable and how, how well the department can absorb new technology. So as we uh, as we think about the future industrial, I call it future industrial network because I think it's more than just an industrial base, which uh, which is kind of hardware centric. Where do you see us if we're successful five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now as a country? Do you think we can align and really leverage these commercial best practices, particularly in scaling software quickly uh, between the government and uh, and the tech base? You, you think it's possible? And, and what would be the 
one or two things that would help accelerate that uh, more quickly? I, I think that is the question. And my my view, I, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature here on this stuff. I think we will align. I think the, the kind of resilience and adaptability of the kind of American system is, is second bar none. And, and I see that even playing out in the commercial world today and the kind of presence of an emerging recession, depression, uh, and, and the different sort of attitudes and responses of different nations to this. Um, but I think one of the crucial things and what makes this so hard is that, you know, for an industrial base that was really built for World War II, um, you didn't have tech, you didn't have a spread of valuation, you didn't have the sort of accretion of talent to certain pockets within the American economy. Now we have those things. How do we um, account for that and motivate folks uh, to, to work on these problems? And I, my, my, if I was going to sum up my essential policy advice, it would be, um, spend half as much money twice as quickly. That's awesome. And now, when I introduced you, I talked about how you don't just oversee what's going on in the U.S., but really worldwide. And you mentioned we're at this interesting time because of the economic outlook, but also as we think about globalization or discussions around deglobalization. So can you talk about how you're thinking about international strategy and working with our allies or maybe countries you won't work with going forward? Yeah, um, the allied coalition component has never been more, more important. I think we're only starting to really formalize this, these concepts, but we should really think about the future of the kill chain as being distributed across coalition partners. You know, some folks will be doing target nomination, target development. Some other folks might be helping with BDA on the other side. There's going to be a series of distributed effectors that are out there. Um, this sort of concept that's now being discussed of Uber for fires, you know, this is all going to come together and it's going to be maximally effective in an allied environment. And we're already seeing bits of that happening on the battlefield today. Um, and so the, the, the coalition component could not be more important. It actually is part of our founding vision. You know, so we, we never thought that any one country on its own could fight terrorism, that there were a lot of dots. And it was not only hard to connect the dots within a country, but actually different countries had different components of these dots. And so you were going to need a very strong data governance framework that allowed you to selectively share information securely based on classification, based on need to know, based on the circumstances that you were participating in. And I, I would say that, you know, from a series of deployments that that has, that has been wielded to great effect. And I see that even now in, in, the, in the Pacific with Indopaycom and the multi-partner environment, that the need to facilitate real-time collaboration across the quad so that everyone is looking at a single pane of glass that's backed by a single pane of data, despite the fact that you have all these policy, all these classification, all these coalition conditions that would otherwise have hampered information sharing. So I think one, for, you know, one facet that the DoD still struggles with is since World War II, largely it was a technology exporter. I mean, Silicon Valley started out of that and a lot of the te technologies, 60s, 70s, semiconductors, all that were exported out of DoD. And now the DoD in large regards got to shift to be an importer, importer and integrator of technology. And I know one of the struggles we had in software was uh, DOD's kind of propensity to redevelop things as opposed to leverage things already developed. Um, but I do think there's been some progress in ATOs and all that. Are you seeing uh, a little less of that, you know, we'll take your ID and redevelop it as our own and, and more a willingness to integrate uh, existing tech? You see, you see that getting better or worse? Where it needs to be, or what's your take on that? I think it is getting better. It's slowly getting better. And, you know, it varies by pockets. You know, there's certain parts of the government that really place a premium on on developing the software themselves. There's certain parts that want to move fast, 
and, and experiment. I think to, to co- go back to your earlier comment on the World War II industrial base, one of the things that we really had uniquely going for us, may have not seemed like it at the time, was that we, it was, we had tremendous exigency. There was no time to, quote unquote, do this right. It had to be done quickly. And I think paradoxically, often when you have to do it quickly, you end up doing it right. Uh, and so that we, we should be thinking about the ways in which we can actually impose some of these constraints on us. And if we don't, those constraints will be imposed on us. We will find ourselves in the exigency having to do these things. Um, I do think one of the real challenges with this, you know, the, the DOD is responsible from the World War II area for American prosperity. And I, I think somehow we've kind of lost that broad narrative, although I, I think people in this community understand that. I don't think the citizenry at large does. And so Silicon Valley is a child of the department. Now, the child has become so prosperous. You, you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple, you look at American tech is dominant. It's so dominant that we sometimes don't realize that it's American tech. We just think about it as tech, you know, and with all due respect to my Israeli friends and the German Berlin tech scene, and but there is no tech scene like America's tech scene. They're, the second best is not even on the same chart. And so we really have to think about that as a national asset and how we integrate it. One of the things that I think makes this really hard is like the department is still a technology exporter for some truly exquisite things. You know, so I think part of this is you have to acknowledge the asymmetry. It's like, well, look, for what we're doing with hypersonics, what we're doing for a whole class of things, the exquisite, amazing physics and engineering is coming from the department and its industrial base. Now, for a whole other class of things that typically tends to be software, all that R&D, the scale of what, what innovation is, it's coming from the commercial world. And we and I like the word you used earlier with impedance mismatch, because I think that's exactly what it is, is how do we get these two things to match? So along these lines, what advice would you give founders who are thinking about starting a business focused on national security or the defense markets, or maybe not entirely focused, but as part of their business plan? Any lessons learned from this experience of, of building such an important business in the market and, and that you'd tell our listeners? Absolutely. There, there's, look, there's no easy button. This is going to be a hard journey, but that's going to be true if you're selling to a commercial world or to the government world. And uh, that the mission is highly motivating. I think one of the things that I would say with the benefit of hindsight of our own experience is that we should have listened more. You know, there, there, there's a lot that you can learn by really understanding what are the considerations? Because the consideration is more than just how exquisite is your technology. You know? and, and it takes a lot of energy, a lot of self-motivation, a lot of belief to even get your tech to that point. But equally, there's a need to understand and meet the commanders and the warfighters and the acquisition executives with where they are, with their programs, and how you're going to find the, the fast insertion path. Um, and, and I think um, working with the industrial base is, is really key. You know, when we started, the, your only real options were the uh, incumbent legacy primes uh, who have, again, exquisite technology, but also their business model is set up in a way that doesn't make it very rewarding for them. Actually, they might be biting their own hand off to be working with you. But now we have a much broader base. The, the base there's a base of, of innovative companies who are going to find a lot of value and actually um, can accelerate your own journey to winning here. Yeah, I think another thing I've heard a lot of folks who've gone through this talk with founders about is don't sell the tech, sell a mission solution. And don't be afraid to partner with other companies to you know put one and one and one together and get 15 or something uh, to there. Do you see... Uh, a greater partnership on a willingness amongst the tech community to collaborate, or is there still too much kind of founder siloing, you know, um, kind of trying to do it all themselves 
in spite of maybe the opportunities that are out there. Unsurprisingly, you see the most willingness to partner um, on, on new capture initiatives, right? Like where there's time to influence and then shape what the contract's going to look like. And I think that's a large function of once the contract's awarded, it's really hard to figure out why the economics will make sense. Uh, and so partnering, my real advice around this is that whereas in the commercial world, you might be able to have partnerships that bring fruition in six months, you should really expect the cycle time on the partnership here to pay off and take more like 24 months, which is an eternity, I know, in, in, in startup time. But having that sort of lens that you're not, you know, that's what it's going to take and, and making sure you're not misreading the, the motivations or intentions of your partners, I think, will make this a, a, a less painful and more, more rewarding sort of journey. And I, I like what you say. I almost take it for granted because I've just been in steep in this for so long. But you absolutely I, I think this is one of the greatest challenges for tech companies is they're, they're selling the tech. Nobody cares about the tech. Um, of course, they, I mean, they care, but that's only that's only you know, half the problem. The other half of the problem is why does it matter and how long is it going to get to take to matter? And I think much of the processes that have been built up have been around that. So if you, if you just start with, here's how it matters, I can prove to you that matters, it's fielded, I'll do the work to do that, you're going to just go so much faster. Uh, and you're going to run circles around your competition there. I know you see this firsthand, and it's something the department's thinking a lot about as well. But when we think about technology, it's really the people behind it, whether it's developing adoption, implementation, people matter. How are you thinking about talent as a business and any advice about how we can stimulate more talent in both the tech and national security realm? Uh, I think, you know, the greatest asset that national security has is that it is a hugely motivating space and it draws great people towards it. And I think the same is true in tech. There are lots of folks in tech who want to work on these problems, but the barriers to have access to some of these problems are very high. And I, I've seen that, you know, we're, we are chopping down those barriers collectively as a group of private and public sector agencies and organizations. Um, but, and I think we should wield that to maximum advantage. You don't need 100% of the country to want to work on these problems. But for the 10% who's highly gifted and they could be going into any other line of business, for them, this is, there's actually no better job than this. They are so excited to have this. And so I think by continuing to, to make um, the opportunity to contribute on these problems available, we will magnetically attract this sort of talent. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I noticed uh, in the department for a long time is we had many more authorities available than we culturally would use. Uh, and we had all, you know, a number of cultural barriers to get over. One of those was we have great authorities to do job sharing or people can go in between tech and do a couple of years in government, um, serve in the government side, learn some, or if you're in government, go into tech. And I think that's uh, still an underutilized uh, opportunity for all of us. You probably uh, get a lot of uh, military folks or ex-civil servants into the tech scene. How are they integrating themselves? Do they add value? And, and maybe do you have advice of kind of on the flip side, how can they best get their talents and bring them to bear after coming out of the military or whatnot in, uh, in a kind of a tech company, which has a different culture uh, to, its, to its own? Uh, that, that's a great question. I mean, I actually think there's a deep, you know, we certainly felt this um, working with folks at SOCOM that the, that the cultural alignment between the Valley and the operators is very high. I mean, the skill set, the competency is very different, obviously, for, between an operator and, and, a, and, a, and a coder. But actually, this complete focus on the mission outcome it actually is the common substrate. It was the lingua franca that enabled us to, to bond together, whether we were working on problems forward or whether there was someone who was transitioning and joining our institution, they, they were not a fish out of water. Actually, they found themselves, 
you know, uh, in an environment they actually understood deeply and, and were profoundly able to contribute to right out the gate. And I think some of this sometimes we're just there's a little bit of imposter syndrome. I think folks coming out of this saying, you know, they're 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 the world's heroes, but they're unsure sometimes of how they're going to fit in into the professional world. And, and they more often than not, they end up excelling. Well, on that note, because I think it's an important call to action to those who want to serve both on the public sector and private sector side at companies like Palantir. I'd say your story is such an inspiration. And these are great ideas about how we can help other companies enter the market. So thanks so much for taking their time out of today to join us. Thank you both so much for having me. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org. 